Hi, listeners. This is Understand South Carolina, a weekly news podcast from the Post and Courier. I'm Emily Williams. And I'm Gavin McIntyre. From late May into early June, protests were held in cities across the country, sparked by the death of George Floyd and fueled by years of what protesters have seen as unjust policing in their communities, particularly in black communities. South Carolina was no different. Activists in Columbia and Charleston in particular took to the streets. And while large-scale protests in both cities started peacefully, they escalated. Property was damaged, police deployed tear gas or non-lethal rounds, and curfews were imposed. In South Carolina's capital, the largest protests on May 30th and 31st led to about 100 arrests. Reporters Joseph Craney and Jessica Holdman spent months reviewing hundreds of police reports, emails, and court documents. They interviewed protesters, lawyers, former prosecutors, and legal scholars. Today, they're sharing what they learned and why some people who are arrested say they've been falsely accused of violent crimes. Your reporting in this project focuses on the largest protest that happened in Colombia in the wake of George Floyd's death. That was the weekend of May 30th and the 31st. There were also large-scale protests in Charleston that same weekend. So let's just start by setting the scene for that day. How many people came out? When did this protest start? Uh, Describe the first part of that day, uh, May 30th. Uh, So the day started, everyone kind of gathered outside City Hall in Columbia, which is on Main Street, really the uh, center of the city. It all started with a march down Main Street toward the Capitol, which is on the other end. You know, there were grandparents out there, there were children, everyone was uh, together and chanting and really kind of showing a united force. When we arrived at the state capitol, the organizers called everyone up to the steps. And so this crowd of probably close to a thousand people just climbed the steps of the capitol. They were hanging over the sides. Everyone was just super excited to be there. And uh, it it was a big show of force and people were out there talking about their experiences and you, you got the the idea that uh, people were tired and they really wanted to see a change and they were coming from all of the small towns around the capital city as well as within uh within Colombia and from my memory the the protests in Colombia that day started earlier than those that happened in Charleston. So kind of here in Charleston, just as things were starting, we were hearing about the protest in Columbia escalating and the tensions between the protesters and police escalating. So when when did that start and and what did you start to see? How did that how did that first appear? Protesters uh, arrived at the Columbia police station around two o'clock in the afternoon and tensions were high. When everyone first arrived, um, there was a lot of yelling. Things uh, things stayed relatively under control for probably probably close to two hours uh, while they were in front of the police station. There were the occasional um, times when the crowd would kind of get riled up. They were tossing water bottles. Uh, throwing water bottles kind of over 
the line of police toward the police station. Um, there were rocks thrown at times, uh, but those would kind of boil up and then settle back down for a while. Uh, we had a couple other instances. Uh, some folks took down the, the American flag that's in front of the police station and uh, set it on fire in an act of protest as well. I think as the day wore on, the heat rose. It was getting quite warm out there. You had people walking around handing out water bottles. You had people with first aid kits trying to make sure everyone was okay. There was actually one protester who passed out from heat exhaustion, and they took her into the police station to, to take care of her. I think it was probably around 3.30, 4 o'clock, when things really kind of started to turn. Uh, a man showed up. He was wearing a Make America Great Again hat, and uh, that sparked a conflict uh, with some in the crowd. It led to the man being assaulted, uh, and police came down to help him out. And it was it was at that time when uh, when I think things really kind of started to get bad. That's when more heavy objects were being thrown. Yeah, I remember that moment when it happened because... Before then, you know, uh, protesters and the police were kind of, they were very close, but they were kind of uh, very divided by uh, a metal fence and then police in riot gear. But that moment, that was really kind of like the first kind of time they really kind of really were like face to face. There was no metal fence or anything. And, you know, that's kind of where like it kind of started to like really direct confrontation and escalate after that. Um, and I remember, you know, at that point when I started to throw, you know, the heavier objects towards like the unmarked vehicle, they drove off. And then Jessica, you might have gotten a better look than I did. Um, they started shooting, yeah, the non-lethal rounds. I guess what kind of led to that when it started to really, you know, kind of the police response to that point? Yeah. So I, I think for me, what I saw that day was uh, as the protesters had kind of come around this uh, unmarked SUV, um, there were people, they, they scaled the hood, they were jumping on the roof. Uh, and then a, a contingent of officers in riot gear pushed down the hill and kind of pushed the crowd away from the SUV. And what you ended up was the situation where you probably had half a dozen officers standing around this SUV and they were they were surrounded by a group of protesters. At that point, um, more officers arrived. There were sled agents, there was highway patrol. Uh, the cavalry kind of really came in at that point. And um, to disperse the crowd away from uh, those officers that were standing around the SUV, that's when they started um, firing off the, I believe, the less than lethal rounds. And in that, uh, in that situation, uh, one of the protesters was actually armed and fired shots into the air. Uh, he was immediately arrested on the spot, but it really caused a lot of confusion. Everyone scattered. A lot of people ran back up the hill towards the police station. Others were scattered throughout the blocks and kind of made their way back back to where most of the protest was going on. 
let's fast forward a little bit in that day. Eventually, there was a curfew imposed and obviously with the goal of, of dispersing that, that protest at the end of the day. How did, how did things end on Saturday in Colombia? As things had gotten worse, tensions rose, uh, protesters began uh, throwing rocks at, uh, graffitiing, and eventually setting on fire uh, two or three police cars that were parked out uh, on a side street in front of the police station. And um, at that point, Columbia's mayor, uh, members of city council, uh, county council, you know, they were seeing these these uh, images that I guess in their experience probably had not seen before in their city. So they all uh, gathered inside the police station and it was a little after six when they decided to implement a curfew. Um, the curfew was put in place retroactively. Uh, it started at six, but they didn't announce it until probably quarter after 6.30. They made the announcement and the, the mayor made it very clear that anyone who was out on the streets should go home where they would be arrested um, and use very strong language uh, to let people know that they, they were having no tolerance for any kind of further destruction that might take place in the capital city. Um, it would be around seven o'clock when folks were sort of given a final warning that they needed to leave. Uh, at that time, the police line had kind of pushed everyone onto the street in front of the police department, so they were no longer on the on the big lawn that's out there. And uh, started pushing them forward down it down the uh, the streets in front of the police station and into one of the major entertainment areas, actually, uh, for the capital city. It's called the Vista. Uh, and as the group was moving along, that's when you started to see a lot of uh, destruction of private property happening. Uh, windows were being broken, mostly. Uh, there was a restaurant where a group of folks broke in and uh, we set a fire in the bathroom. Uh, I think it was put out pretty quickly, but they also stole liquor uh, from behind the bar and just kind of you could see this path of destruction as uh, as police came and really kind of pushed people out of the area. It didn't last very long because police were pushing through pretty quickly. And like I mentioned earlier, the same day there was a protest in Charleston. It started later in the day. So I remember hearing about things you mentioned, like the, the police cars being damaged and set on fire at a a point where the protest here was was largely still pretty under control and nothing like that had happened but then it escalated later in the day what do we know about how those two protests kind of compare in terms of what the the damage was day after so of course like we said these were on different timelines but but what do we know about those differences in the um the impacts uh, to the areas that, that the protests came through. Sure. I, kn- I know one thing that we found in our research is uh, that the the extent of the damage was quite different in Columbia than it was in Charleston. 
Um, most of the damage that was done here actually happened still during the daylight hours. Uh, and what we found, there were roughly 25 businesses that were damaged here, uh, as opposed to Charleston, which was quite widespread. I think more than 150 private property owners reported damage uh, down there in the Holy City. I, I think it had a lot to do with the uh, with the timing that things did end up happening here earlier in the day, and police reacted, uh, and city leaders act, reacted quite a bit differently, enacting the curfew earlier, and uh, pushing folks out of the area before uh, before the night hours. So let's let's move forward to post the that protest and 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 also just after that that weekend kind of more into this uh reporting that both of you have been working on for really for months now so how were these protests and and the people involved in them framed by law enforcement after these these protests happened um it's been really striking uh the past five months the way that local law enforcement have categorized those two days. Um, numerous times throughout the summer, Richland County's Sheriff Leon Lott got in front of TV cameras and made really serious claims. He said um, the protests were infiltrated by gangs or others who had no other intention but to agitate the crowd and cause violence or destruction. Um, he also said that the crowd had intentions to burn down Columbia police headquarters and consistently he, um, was really keen on portraying the police's aggressive approach in rounding up people, um, not just people who, uh, committed assault or who the police documented, you know, committing seriously destructive acts like setting police vehicles on fire. Um, they were broadcasting video of protesters who the police have not said did anything more than throw a water bottle or tag a police car with graffiti or tag other vehicles with graffiti. Um, at one point, Lot, the sheriff during a press conference, I think three months after the protest said, you know, we're not, he effectively said, we're not done yet. We're still going to come find you, put handcuffs on you, knock on your door at four in the morning. Um, so while I don't think most people would dispute that, particularly that Saturday, there was an intense period of unrest in Colombia. What was striking to us in our reporting was following and documenting the really aggressive approach that law enforcement has taken, rounding up not just those peop people responsible for the most destructive acts that Saturday, but this even larger group of people accused solely of far more minor actions. You mentioned that that statement about uh, people coming in from from outside the area, that, that claim by law enforcement that people came in from outside uh, Columbia during those protests. What did you find looking through the, the documents about, about the, the validity of that claim? We found that claim has very little validity, at least 
very little evidence that the police has presented thus far. Um, the sheriff has mentioned one teenager who came from Orangeburg, who the sheriff said had some affiliation with a gang. He did not detail that affiliation and has not said anything publicly about that since then. And he has also repeatedly referred to the far-right anti-government group, the Boogaloo Boys, as having something to do with Columbia's unrest. Uh, we repeatedly asked the sheriff's department to present evidence to us of uh, actions by that group that contributed to Columbia's, some of the more destructive acts in Columbia. So far, out of the roughly 100 people arrested in Columbia, the sheriff's department has directly tied two of them, two Boogaloo boys. And for what it's worth, um, we attempted to reach out to those two people and both of their lawyers uh, declined to speak with us. However, we should state that, you know, none of those people have been convicted or have admitted to actually being affiliated with that group. So months later, despite the repeated statements from law enforcement, um, there's very little evidence, at least publicly presented, to back up a lot of those claims. Between those two days, you wrote that roughly 100 people were arrested. What do the majority of those arrest reports look like, and what were they charged with? Uh, what we found in going through the police reports is that probably a quarter to a third of those arrested, they were arrested on, for more destructive or more violent acts, whether that be assaults, uh, looting, burglary. But for the rest of them, uh, most of the charges were minor. They were misdemeanors, they were curfew violations, and even some of the uh, some of those folks that faced heftier charges or faced felonies, what we found is what they were actually alleged to have done didn't appear to uh, us or to our expert uh, expert sources to really rise to the level of what you would typically think of as a felony. Again, we had folks that are facing multiple felonies. And police allege that they threw a water bottle or that, again, that they spray painted a vehicle. Um, we, and we also had probably uh, about a dozen folks that are facing felonies that were mistakenly filed, that they should have been charged with a curfew violation and uh, for whatever reason ended up being charged with felony looting. Uh, and we're told that there was a, there was confusion when they were booked when they entered the jail and they had just expected a minor charge and it's instead they now face felonies that have upended their life in the meantime. Let's talk a little bit more about that because I know that was something included in the story in something that a police spokesperson confirmed that there were uh, several instances where they said they made. A mistake, right? So what's what's happening to correct those? The police, after we asked questions, acknowledged that they falsely filed felony charges against five protesters uh, who all happened to be arrested at the same time and protesting together. Um, in addition to those five cases, we acknowledge we found five others 
where the arrest reports clearly state that the people were taken in for curfew violations, but through some error, it would seem, um, they were charged with the same felony that the five others were charged with. So the police acknowledged the errors in five cases and said the five protesters will have a court date next month where it'll be sorted out at that point. Um, It's not clear exactly how the police will address these five other cases that we identified. Um, We know that in some of those instances, in some of those instances, people have retained uh, legal counsel. Uh, And we spoke with one lawyer who said he's trying to get the charges corrected. Um, But it's important to note that uh, coronavirus has shuttered courtrooms in Colombia. And for the past six months, uh, since the day that many of these people were arrested, um, very few of them have had a, a, a day in court to formally contest their charges or seek relief from a judge. And one person who says they were, you know, wrongfully accused of a violent offense was Demarcus Bolton. Um, what does he say that happened during the protests and how is that compared with what he's been charged with? Demarcus Bolton is a 30 year old contractor from Columbia who contends that, uh, that Saturday, May 30th, he didn't do anything wrong. He says he went downtown, uh, in the afternoon when it was just getting especially warm. Um, and he hauled, he used a truck, uh, that he has to haul uh, about 30 cases of water downtown and he spent much of the afternoon he says passing out water demarcus took uh many photos and videos that day which he shared with us which show him doing little more than uh recording some of the actions around him at one point toward dusk he started recording a line of protesters who had like a face-to-face confrontation with police it was nothing violent but there was some shouting involved You can see from the video that DeMarcus at one point asks one of the officers to remove his sunglasses so that DeMarcus could have a conversation with him without his sunglasses. At that point, another officer taps the officer on the shoulder and they take DeMarcus to the ground and handcuff him. He was booked that night and charged with felony looting, which is a charge that implicates him either in looting, damaging, or disturbing property. Um, His arrest reports state that he uh, did nothing other than violate curfew. He is one of the protesters who has had a felony charge on his record for the past five months and uh, little opportunity to seek uh, relief from the courts. And his was a striking case because he says this felony charge has disrupted his life. He had a job in Columbia supervising a construction project, but because of the felony charge, which is a really serious charge that carries serious prison time, um, he's been sidelined from that work. And since June, he's had to commute to the Charlotte area, you know, roughly two hour commute there and back every day. It sounds like he was pretty uh, open with you and shared a, a good amount about his experience. Like you said, not only what happened to him, but some of his his photos and recordings of that day. I'm wondering, has he had any success challenging those charges? It it seems like maybe uh, sharing his his story through this story maybe was one of the avenues that he saw for for getting that out there. He has a lawyer. That's 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 one positive thing for him. 
Um, and his lawyer uh, told us that uh, they have approached the Columbia Prosecutor's Office, the Office of the Fifth Circuit Solicitor, to um, seek a correction in this case. Um, we should note that we also reached out to Fifth Circuit Solicitor Byron Gibson and mentioned uh, DeMarcus's case specifically, in addition to a handful of other cases. And uh, Solicitor Gibson declined to address any of them specifically because they're still pending cases. Um, it remains to be seen once the solicitor's office completes its, its review of all these arrests, how many of these charges will actually be prosecuted in court. One of the things I wanted to ask you both about, too, because part of having these conversations with, with reporters on this podcast is about giving people a, a better idea sometimes of how we report stories. So can you both talk a little bit more about how you put this together? Uh, obviously, these these protests happened, like we said, at the end of May. Uh, you've been working on this for quite a while, and some of these documents were requested months ago. Can you talk a little bit more about that process and how you decided what to request, who to talk to? Um, it was important for us to, I think, first create a list of the people who were actually arrested. There was this consistent um, wave of information that law enforcement kept releasing throughout the summer um, accusing protesters of all these really serious actions and, and basically describing them in the press as, as criminals. And it was important for us to not take the police's word at that. I think that's part of what I was initially interested in. Um, so Jessica and I, uh, using police department press releases and other information, just built a list of names and then uh, using court records and reports that we later requested from police, uh, basically just went case by case um, to see if the charge met what police were able to document and to see if there were any other inconsistencies um, or flaws in the, the cases that police had brought and these statements that the police chief and the sheriff had made about what happened that weekend. I think we set out to, to see if, if, if the records would actually back up what they had been saying. Yeah, I think one thing that um, maybe complicated this a little bit was that there was this rolling process of more arrests announced and more arrests announced. And this happened over the course of probably two or three months after that initial date, because uh, police had made this pledge that they were going to track people down. And so the, the list of arrests kept growing and it was pretty piecemeal the way the, the information was coming out. Um, and so I think that was really the, the first part of it was trying to enumerate for people where, where we were in terms of the number of arrests. Um, from there, we started seeking arrest reports. Uh, usually in these reports, there's a narrative of what happened uh, that led to these arrests. Uh, what we found in a good number of those 
was that uh, the, the narratives didn't appear complete or folks were charged with crimes that were far beyond what was included in the narrative. Uh, for the most part, a good chunk of them just said that they had violated curfew, uh, but they were facing looting charges or Berkeley charges. And so the next step from there was to go to the court system and seek out court documents in hopes of uh, finding out a little bit more of what happened that day and the evidence that uh, police said they had against these folks for charges. For more of this reporting, you can read their full story, which we'll include in today's show notes. And if you're looking for more, check out Post and Courier Columbia, which is always online and now in print once a week. Another reminder for our listeners that we are giving away a free pair of AirPods to one of our newsletter subscribers. The link to sign up is always on our Understand SC homepage. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Find us on Twitter at Understand SC. Thanks for listening. Understand South Carolina is a production of The Post and Courier. Our music is by Billy Fountain. You can stream his music on Spotify at Billy Fountain. We'd love to know what you think of this show. You can reach us at understandsc at postandcourier.com or on Twitter at understandsc. If you're a fan of this show, please rate and review us on the Apple Podcasts app. Keep up with the latest headlines at postandcourier.com. We'll see you all next week. Thank you.